As we continue in our worship now, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be talking this morning about signs and wonders, the, the power that's in the name of Jesus, as we just sang. We are, by human nature, we're drawn to signs and wonders. When something astonishing happens, we are pulled towards it. Like when we see a beautiful rainbow in the sky, we stop and we stare. Or when we see a butterfly emerge from a cocoon, we marvel at the beauty that we've just seen. Or when the husband does the dishes without prompting, (laughs) wow, what a miracle. Signs and wonders, they draw out in us a reaction, and they happen all around us. They happen all around us. Uh, Maybe you're praying for the salvation of a loved one, and they've come to faith in Jesus' name. Maybe you were here a couple weeks ago, and you saw four, four guys getting baptized under the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go through the waters of baptism. Or maybe you were a part of one when we as a church, in a season of economic turmoil, gave $50,000 to a missions partner out east. And there's one more example I, I would like to give uh, of a miracle, and that is uh, just this past Wednesday, it was the one-year anniversary of my dad's brain surgery. One year. Yeah, that's gone by fast. And for those of you who don't know, as a church, we were praying for my dad last year when he started losing his eyesight. Uh, Everything was getting darker and darker, and they finally were able to discover that he had a a massive golf ball-sized tumor on his pituitary gland that that was crushing his optic nerve. And um, it took a 12-hour surgery and the miraculous work of God and those surgeons to fully remove that tumor, praise God. And we're praising him as well that now he does have 20-20 vision again in his right eye. Yeah. In our text, Peter is going to show us this morning that when you see a miracle, you give God the glory. When you see something incredible, you give God the credit. And when something astonishing happens in your life, you tell people about the God who did it. Church, we're going through the book of Acts in our times together on Sunday morning, and today we're going to be tackling the whole of chapter 3. Pastor Paul's away, so I thought, let's do a whole chapter. Let's, let's get going here. Um, So at the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his apostles, he says, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. And here in chapter 3, we get to see that they did, in fact, begin by witnessing in Jerusalem. In this chapter, we're going to see a sign and a sermon. The sign being the healing of a paralytic man, and the sermon being Peter's explanation of that sign. The bystanders, bystanders in this scene, if you'll picture it with me, they see a miracle. They see a healing, a, a paralytic man regaining strength in his feet and walking. And that seeing that drew out in them a reaction, as we've been talking about. In fact, the text says that they go running over to Peter and John. But Peter, rather than taking credit for this miracle, he preaches He followed up the miracle with an explanation, a sign, and a sermon. And we're going to look at both of those this morning in chapter 3. So turn there with me now, and we'll begin reading with verse 1. 
Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go up to the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up as he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. If we're going to understand Peter's sermon this morning, then we need to first look at the sign that inspired it. And I want to draw your attention to two elements from this miracle, from this healing. The first is the healing itself. We can think of at least three reasons why Luke, the author here, found it important to share this miracle with us. First, he did so to explain the signs that were being uh, performed by the apostles. He's giving an example because in Acts 2.43, he had just said that many signs and wonders were being done among the apostles. So here he's giving an example. Secondly, as I mentioned it's, he wants to give a reason for recounting Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon is directly connected to this sign. And so Luke includes the sign so that we can hear this morning an incredible sermon. Peter's, not mine. It's Peter's sermon I'm referring to there. don't want you to get the wrong impression. Uh, and then finally, Luke's included this healing to show us why. An example, a reason, and now why these earliest Christians were going to face persecution there's some, some foreshadowing here, as we'll see, because this beautiful story ultimately leads to Christians being persecuted. So now as we turn to chapter 3, we find Peter and John, and they're making their way up to the temple for their daily prayers. Isn't it interesting that after the fireworks of Pentecost, they followed that up with ordinary daily prayer? After the incredible event of Pentecost... It was followed by the formative work of daily prayer. It says that Peter and John were making their way up to the temple for the 3 p.m. prayer meeting, the ninth hour, the 3 p.m. prayer meeting. In church, we don't want to get so caught up in the miraculous that we forget the prayer meeting. God meets us in the extraordinary, certainly so, but he also meets us in the ordinary. And as they go up to the temple, they go in through the gate called the beautiful gate. The Jewish historian Josephus recounts this gate and describes it by saying that it was made of fine Corinthian brass, 75 feet tall with large double doors. It was exceedingly beautiful and remarkably crafted. It's at this gate that we encounter the lame man. And there's something to be said of that. It's a picture of utter opposites. This raggedy, feeble man sitting in front of a glorious creation. There's some foreshadowing here as well, because God is about to turn this man into a new 
and glorious creation, more precious than the one he sits in front of each and every day. You see, he simply wanted to be supported in the condition that he was in. But God had something better, something much greater in mind. Jesus wanted to completely change his condition. And isn't that true of us? We, we sometimes want a temporary fix rather than an eternal solution. We want our current situation dealt with, and we get so consumed by that that we lose sight of eternity. Our current condition consumes us when it should point us to Christ. Perhaps a better way of putting it, as one theologian did, he said, it is not the church's business in this world to simply make the present condition more bearable. The task of the church is to release here on earth the redemptive work of God in Christ. Of course, the lame man felt that he had no other option than to be supported in his condition. In Judaism, the act of giving alms was considered a righteous act. So he, he went and sat before a people who claimed to be righteous in order to receive a righteous gift. But what did Peter and John say? Silver and gold have I none. Do you remember that song from Sunday school? Silver and gold have I none. No? Okay, wow. <laughs> Do you even Christian... Uh, he asked them for money, and they said they didn't have any, which I find kind of interesting because we just read in Acts 2 that the Christian community was actually being very generous. They were selling their possessions. They were giving things away. So it's interesting that it sounds like they're saying when they get to this man, oh, sorry, but I don't have any cash on me, which I know that's what we would like them to be saying because then that's an excuse we can use, uh, but I don't think that's what they're saying. I'm not saying they had full access to all this silver and gold, but I think what they're saying is, rather than that, we have something much greater to give you. And they, they looked into the eyes of this beggar, and they didn't see an embarrassment to society. They saw a child made in the image of God. As the great preacher G. Campbell Morgan notes here, he says, Peter looked, and through the eyes of Peter there flashed the love of Christ. Oh, that the world would see the love of Christ in our eyes in this day and age. They didn't give him money. They gave him Christ. There's a story, uh, perhaps true, I've just heard it, so I'm not sure if it's actually true, but it's a story of a humble monk who is on a pilgrimage to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he encounters uh, a Roman Catholic cardinal. Uh, this was at the height when uh, Rome and the Catholic Church was in its the Catholic Church was in its uh, greatest wealth and prestige, probably in the medieval era, sometime around there. And the cardinal is showing this monk all the treasures of the church. He's pointing at all the silver and pointing at the gold. And he, he says to the monk, look, you see, we, we no longer have to say silver and gold have I none. But the monk simply smiled and replied, but neither can you say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. They'd missed the point because they thought that wealth and prestige equated to power in ministry. But Peter knew different. Peter takes this beggar by the right hand and he lifts him up. Not just from his physical condition, but from his spiritual position. And under the direct prompting of the Holy Spirit, Peter trusted God for something completely out of the ordinary. 
And what happened next? That's the second thing I want us to take note of is the response. The response of the man, the response of Peter and John, the response of the crowd. It says immediately the man's feet received strength and he rose. Now as soon as he was healed, he did three things. Did you notice those? The three things that he did first, he immediately started to use the gift that he had received. God gave him the ability to walk and leap And so he did. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping. (laughs) He used the gift he had received. Secondly, and I find this one interesting, he attached himself to the apostles. The text doesn't say that he got healed and then ran off to tell some folks or, or do whatever he'd been wanting to do his whole life. It says he entered the temple with them. And finally, it says he began to praise and to worship God. He received the gift, he followed the apostles, and he praised God. And guess what? Everyone noticed. His reaction was that of a life filled with faith, which everyone noticed. I'll tell you, a changed life under the gospel of Christ is the most noticeable thing this world can see. A changed life under the gospel of Christ is the most important thing that the world needs to see right now in us. Everyone noticed because they all knew who this man was. He was more than 40 years old. We know that from Acts 4, 22. And he had been crippled since birth. So he was a familiar sight at this temple gate. And that amazing sign drew a crowd. And as was the case... After Pentecost, Peter took this opportunity to address the crowd and to share the meaning behind the sign, behind this miracle they had just witnessed. So we're going to turn our attention away now from the sign and towards the sermon. Please look with me. We'll start at uh, verse 11. It says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as if that by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things of which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet, Like me from your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul 
who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter touches a lot of things in that sermon, and we'll address many of those things now in our time together, but I first just want to ask the question, why wasn't it enough for Peter to have let the sign stand on its own? Why did he have to preach? I would argue that, that Peter knew that the miraculous event in itself brought no one to Jesus. It merely aroused interest. It, it drew out in them a reaction. And they were greatly amazed, but they weren't saved by witnessing this account. And so he preached. Friends, this is why we can't just dig wells and walk away. Because clean water, though it is, is needed for the body, doesn't save anyone. Just like this man who was asking for money, that money may have supplied his daily need, but it wouldn't have provided an eternal solution to his problem. That's why word and deed have to go together. Peter knew that saving faith did not come by seeing or hearing about miracles. Rather, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. Make sure you check that out after the service today, Romans 10, 17. Peter begins this sermon and he asks them, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as if we've done this by our own power or piety? And I find this an interesting question because it's as if he's asking them, why are you staring at us? Why do you marvel at this? Because Jesus healed all sorts of people when he was here on earth. So why do you find it so strange that he would continue to heal people from heaven? Sometimes our astonishment to the divine reveals a lack of faith. That could be said of this group that uh, Peter was preaching to. Of course, they weren't saved. And so there was this natural astonishment. Well, how could, how could you have done this? How could God have done this? But Christians, do not be surprised when our God acts in miraculous ways. Be thankful and give Him the glory because He alone has the power to do so. And now I want to break down Peter's sermon into two parts, the focus and the implication of the sermon. We'll begin with the focus. The focus is, as you would expect, the person and work of Christ. He is the, the source of the power that enabled this miraculous healing. But who does Peter say it was? Who is this Jesus? Peter says, is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is the source of all power. And by opening with this reference to God, Peter is making it clear exactly which God he was talking about. It was the God of Israel, represented in their Hebrew scriptures. And this is important for a number of reasons. Because the first thing that Peter says about Jesus in this text is that Jesus was the perfect servant of the Lord. 
the, the perfect servant that was spoken of in their Hebrew scriptures. Consider Isaiah 42. Isaiah 52, 53, this is the suffering servant. Peter is saying that this servant was Jesus. He's saying that Pilate, who was the Roman uh, governor, he was determined to let this servant go. But the Jewish mob insisted on the crucifixion, crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter wasn't afraid to confront them with that reality. He said, you delivered up. You denied the Holy One and the just. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life. Now, this doesn't mean that all the Jewish people of that day alone were responsible for the death of Jesus. The Romans, the Gentiles, were also responsible. But the Romans wouldn't have crucified Jesus without pressure from the religious leaders. And the Jews wouldn't have crucified Jesus without the Romans' acceptance of it. God made certain that both Jews and Gentiles shared in the guilt of Jesus' death. Are you hearing that today? Because although none of us were there 2,000 years ago, it was our sin and our guilt that necessitated the cross. It was our sin that needed to be atoned for. Without the cross, we would be left in our sin just like this lame man at the gate. And Peter made this point so explicitly to the crowd because many of them would have been at the crucifixion. So he's directly addressing these people that would have been shouting, crucify him. But are you hearing that? That your sin and my sin needed atonement. So Peter begins by focusing on Jesus as the saving one, the servant and the saving one. Note that although Peter spoke boldly to them about their sin, he doesn't appear to, to hate them or to blame them. Notice instead how he connects with them, how he addresses them as brothers. Verse 17, even though he twice accuses them of denying Jesus, which by the way, this is the same Peter that did so just a couple months earlier, he comes to them with empathy. He says, I know that you did this in ignorance. Peter acknowledges that they called for the execution of Jesus in ignorance to the eternal plan of God. Now, this didn't make them innocent, right? Ignorance isn't innocence. But it did guide Peter's presentation of the gospel. We should pause here for a second, because when we sin in ignorance, it's still sin. We may not have known we offended someone, but when that offense is made known, we must deal with it. But in the same way, neither can the one who was offended hold that against us as a weapon because we did not mean it as an offense. I'll illustrate this by using relationships. We often make this mistake in our marriages. He says one thing, she hears something different, and so she's inclined to retaliate to something that he never said, and he's left standing there completely ignorant of how he's hurt her. But ignorance is a means of amplifying grace. I'll say that again. Ignorance is a means of amplifying grace because the party doesn't know they even deserve it or need it. Just like Christ amplified grace to its maximum on the cross for the same people who were shouting, 
crucify him. And that's what Peter does here. He's telling them that all the evil they did to Jesus did not derail God's plan of redemption. And in fact, God can, God can take the most horrible evil and use it for good. Joseph knew that. Even after the cruelties that his brothers did to him, he was able to say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's Genesis fifty twenty. So Peter begins by explaining that this Jesus was the servant, that he was the saving one, and he's the one who's responsible for this healing. Peter says that it was in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that this man had been made whole. It was in the beautiful name, the wonderful name, the powerful name as we've been singing, that this man's life was changed physically and eternally. There is power in the mighty name of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? And can you say amen to this? That there is power in the mighty name of the ascended Jesus even now here on earth. Peter didn't want us to miss that point, and I don't want us to miss it either, because that's, that's our implication, which is our second main point, the implication of this sermon. It wasn't enough for them to simply have witnessed this miracle. They had to respond. And as he did in his first uh, sermon in Acts 2.38, Peter calls on the crowd to repent. Notice that Jesus uh, sorry, notice that Peter had just spoken to them very boldly about their sins against Jesus. He had just said all those things that they had did and confronted them with their sin, but he didn't leave them there, praise God. His goal wasn't to make them feel bad. It was to make them know the presence of God. His goal was to bring to them repentance and belief. You know, we, we certainly do evangelism the wrong way when we simply tell people or, or shout at them and tell them that they're sinners. When we just do that, rather than bringing them to repentance and belief, it's a, it's a two-part, a two-step plan, like boiling water on the stove. You can fill the pot with water, but unless you turn the element on, it's going to sit there lukewarm for an eternity. Sin isn't final, but salvation is. And the one who repents has their sins forgiven. Peter says, blotted out. Like wiping ink off a document, their record is cleared. Now, interestingly, the ink in the ancient world had no acidity to it, so it couldn't sink into the paper. So most ink in that day could be wiped off with a, a damp cloth. So these people would have got it. We would say today maybe they used whiteout, but that's a bad analogy because whiteout is just covering it up. It's not removing the sin. They had a better understanding of what it meant for that ink to be blotted out and taken away. That's the good news. Their sins could be taken away. But there's another side to that coin which Peter now presses in. He warns them about something. We'll get to that in just a second. But he, he's warning them about something when he refers to Moses' prophecy. Did you catch that? The Jewish people of Peter's day were well aware of Moses' prophecy referenced here from Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. And some thought that the prophet would be different than the Messiah. They were expecting two figures, a prophet and a Messiah. But Peter here makes it clear that they are the same person. 
He said, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. There's that warning. He shall be destroyed from the people. And ultimately, this prophecy became the legacy of some of the Jews in this scene. But clearly, some heard the call. Acts 4.4 hints that as many as 2,000 people came to faith in this very scene. And by hearing the call to repent and believe, they are now spared the promised judgment. They had been brought into the family of God, which Peter refers to here with his promise to Abraham, where he says that all the families of the earth shall be blessed, all the families of the world, even to the Gentiles. That's the implication for this sermon, that there is salvation in the one with whom the power resides. And that kind of implication demands a response. I want to spend the rest of our time now digging into the significance of this sign and the sermon. The sign tells us what happens. The sermon explains the sign. But what's the significance for us today? Because a lame guy was healed by Peter, which is great. That's good for him. But what about us? Why is this in the text? Why does it matter to us? Is it there to tell us how we should react to homeless people? Is it there to tell us we should go down to the hospital and start healing people? Is it there to show us how we can draw a crowd to the church if we just had a miracle out front every Sunday? This is the significance for us. The lame man at the beautiful gate wanted something, but God gave him something much more something much greater. And the same could be said for the Jewish people. They wanted a certain type of Messiah and prophet, but God gave them someone much better and much greater. And our culture today is looking for something greater. They're looking for some meaning to this life, and God has provided the answer in Jesus Christ. That's why the sign and the sermon are so significant, because the sign points to the restoring work of Jesus, and the sermon calls us to respond to that work of Jesus. First, the sign points us to the restoring work of Jesus. That's what happened here. Jesus restored this man to who he was supposed to be and how he was supposed to live. Who he was supposed to be, meaning a reconciled child of God. And how he was supposed to live, meaning he was born with two legs that didn't work. And God gave him the life he was meant to live, restored. Jesus restored him both physically and spiritually. That's what's so cool about this story, is that in this story, this man actually got to experience a taste of his future and eternal reality in this sign. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that Jesus is in the business of restoration. And this sign points us to the one who is able to restore physically and spiritually. It's not Peter, it's not John, it's Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that everyone here with a physical ailment will leave today fully restored. Even Jesus didn't heal everyone he came into contact with, but but rather in God's plan of redemption we will all be made new. And maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but certainly when Christ returns and makes all things new in the second resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as was the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This life is temporary. If you have cancer, it's going to be gone. If you're experiencing pain, it'll be taken away. If you're watching a loved one suffer right now, it'll pass. This state, this world, this body isn't eternal. And we have a, we have a symbol of that on many of our jackets right now with the poppy. Because the poppy is, is a resilient flower that was one of the first to spring up after the wars on the Western Front. It was able to fight through all that beat up and destroyed ground and came. Flanders Fields, you may have heard that. It is beauty from the ashes. And we will all be made new. That's why it's so important to be whole Bible readers. Because this idea of restoration and redemption is really the narrative of the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of God's redemption. And in the new year, we're going to be partnering with Heritage Theological Seminary, and we're going to run an accredited course called The Progress of Redemption. And it does just that. It traces the story of redemption from cover to cover. This sign points to the restoring work of Jesus, which means that the church is rightly and properly positioned as a place for being restored. When Christ ascended, he inaugurated the church, which makes this a place of restoration in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is a place for whole person restoration and renewal. If it wasn't, then this would just be another social club. One without membership fees, but just another club. No, no, we are agents of faith. We are a people united under the cross of Christ with one vision and one desire to glorify God. And so come. Come to be restored. Come to be renewed. You are being called upon in this sermon to respond. That's the second significant part of this story, that the sermon calls us to respond to the work of Jesus. The sign points to the restoring work, and the sermon calls us to respond. And at the end of the day, we're all going to have to respond to Peter's sermon, and ultimately the work of Christ at final judgment. Some will respond with repentance, and some with rejection. So if you're here today, and you have repented and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, then you have that which is much greater. Respond today in faith, a restoring faith today. But not everyone here has that. Let me tell you, God's commitment to grace is stronger than our commitment to sin. Do you believe that? The Puritan Richard Sibbs said it this way, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So if you're here here and you haven't repented, then now is the time. Respond to that sign. For some of you, being here is in itself a miracle. I know some of your stories. I know where you're coming from that God has brought you here. So respond to that miracle 
in yourself, what God is doing in you by bringing you to a place of restoration and renewal. Repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out. And when you turn, he'll give you more than just a clean slate. He'll give you new life. And you'll experience the presence of God. And you'll see, we'll see, as we have seen, new life, marriages being restored, addictions losing their power, and idols falling to the ground. Christ is being exalted right now because there is power in the name of Jesus right now. The times of refreshing are here. And we have to let that sink in. That only a holy God could do such a work in us and through us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to, to see your works and to respond rightly. To respond with praise that only a holy God could restore and renew a holy people. And we need your, your wonder-working power in our midst. If this is to be a place of renewal and restoration, then it must be a place where your presence dwells. Where you move, we'll follow. Where you speak, we'll listen. And only then will this place be a place where sinners enter, but saints go. There is power in the mighty name of Jesus to change this city. So use us, God, we pray. Amen.